This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I found it fascinating uh, when writing this commentary, um, almost ironic that uh, this person who carried out this attack and drove the van into uh, the crowd of people who were exiting uh, the London Mosque, no affiliation that we know of at this point anyway, uh, with any sort of radical group, no affiliation with radical uh, extremism, religious extremism, uh, no knowledge of this person, you know, trying to build a bomb or be a suicide bomber or willing to sacrifice his own life for his God, uh, the way that we have seen in past terrorist attacks. So we've sort of gone from people who come from another land to uh, blow us up to uh, people who are traveling to and fro, uh, spreading the hate, spreading the fear, crossing borders. Then we have domestic terrorists who are... I guess those that have been left behind in our society in some way and somehow are radicalized here via the internet, what have you, and then commit domestic attacks. And then we got this latest guy who just figures, you know, he doesn't like Muslims, so he's going to get in a van and plow through a pile of people. At what point do we realize this has nothing to do with race, religion, ethnicity, it's people using a religion or whatever propaganda as a vehicle for their hate. So now we have people of all stripes committing terrorist acts. So do we ban all the people from those countries as well? Who knows how many other 47-year-old men there are in, in the UK that may want to come over here and rent a van and plow it into people. Should we have a travel ban for them? It's kind of odd the way that uh, we can't seem to separate all of this. Uh, and uh, people have noticed this with President Trump and his tweets because it seems President Trump will... Uh, use pretty much any reason, whatever, whenever there's something shiny flash before him, he, he'll, he'll just react. Uh, we saw him getting into it with the mayor of London after the attack previous before the mosque attack and the bridge, the London Bridge attacks. He's getting in a Twitter war with the mayor of London. Now, this act, this act happens... And there's no mention. There's no tweet. The press secretary, uh, Sean Spicer, had mentioned condolences, but no tweet, no, no lambasting the mayor, no lambasting the prime minister, just silence. And it's led some to, th- to believe that the White House is Islamophobic and is really eager to jump on things when it suits their agenda, but when we have accidents, accidents, attacks like this that don't fit the profile are committed by just the average white guy, it doesn't seem to resonate with Donald Trump. And his silence seems to be, I think, speaking greater than anything he ever tweeted. Now, it seems that Ivanka has expressed 
regret in all of this, has has uh, expressed condolences to people, going on to say, we must stand united against hatred and extremism in all its ugly forms, to which one person responded with a tweet, tell your father his selective silence is deafening. Is it a selective silence? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, professor of political science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Hello, Elliot. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. As always, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, is it unusual Donald Trump has not commented on this attack in London? Well, it's fascinating that when Donald Trump doesn't tweet something, it becomes news. Isn't that something? <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Gee whiz, what happened to the norm? Yeah, so... <laughs> It's, it's really uh, one indicator of where we stand right now on, on uh, covering the uh, unconventional American presidency. So are we, are we being biased here? Or are we looking for things that aren't there? Well, I, people who like Donald Trump, and not only that, but the Republican Party, are likely to say that. And they will argue that, you know, the White House did make a statement, and as you pointed out, the daughter made a statement, and uh, there's no reason to think that the lack of a tweet is indicator of uh, anything. However, when you stand back and say, how did he become elected president, and look back at the tenor of that campaign, which was distinctly, unambiguously, uh, full of rhetoric against Muslims and appealing to xenophobia uh, and appealing to a segment of the population to turn them against another uh, segment of the, not only the American population but of the world, so it's very easy to come to the conclusion that he's still dancing with the ones that brung him, that they, he, he succeeded very well with a certain kind of campaign. And particularly now, Scott, when his presidency is so beleaguered, that reverting to that base, reverting back to the successful tropes that uh, mobilize the people who like what he's doing, uh, why change it? So it's easy to come up with that conclusion. Hmm. Uh, are you surprised, though, he hasn't commented, especially after the comments he made in regard to the mayor of London after the last attack, or the one prior to this? Well, <laughs> he tweets about what's in front of him at the minute, apparently. So that attack on the mayor fit a pattern also, because the mayor of London is Muslim. Mm-hmm. And Theresa May, the prime minister, has said that the most recent attack, this time on a mosque, is basically terrorism means terrorism. It's abhorrent. It's an attack on civilization, no matter who's the object of the attack. So she was clear and unambiguous, also fighting for her own political future as well, I suppose. But she was acting in a leadership position inside the country where the attack took place. The American president could, I guess, argue that it didn't happen in the U.S., but there was just a, um, unfortunately, a young Muslim woman who was drowned and look, it looks like a hate crime, and he hasn't commented on that, and people put that together with his silence on, what, uh, on that mosque attack. That mosque attack also, we should point out, the imam came out and saved the life of the attacker. Yeah. Uh, the temptation to take immediate vengeance was very high. The rage was in the air, blood was on the ground, and yet the imam came out and said, well, let's wait for the police. So there's a lot going on here of terms of Islam as a threat, no citizens of a country who happen to be Muslim are citizens of the country. So uh, let's not demonize. That's kind of the debate that's going on. 
Um, do you think this has anything to do with, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, the magnitude of this event or lack of? In other words, unfortunately or fortunately, there was only one killed as opposed to 20. If there had been 20, could he have ignored it? That's perhaps unkind to point out that the worst attack on a mosque occurred in Canada. Mm. And that was a new story. We dealt with it. It's gone. And it's not part of the discourse uh, in Canada. The political discourse, has, or for that matter, the media discourse has moved on from it. And we count on the justice system to deal with this kind of an attack. In an, the United States, in the hyper-political atmosphere, anything to do with Islam, remember his ban, which he now is calling a travel ban, was meant to be a travel ban on Muslims, but not all Muslims, because that would be clearly unconstitutional, but uh, only on certain states. And incidentally, as a footnote to that, that was supposed to be for 90 days. Yeah. Well, things got figured out, and I don't know, the 90 days must be up or almost up. But that's a, a side show. We are dealing with a very violent world where individuals are radicalized, self-radicalized, and there does seem to be a clear distinction in the mind of the U.S. president between Muslims who attack and non-Muslims who attack. So what does it say about this attack when, as I mentioned in the preamble, it doesn't appear at this point, from what we know, that this person's not uh, associated with any sort of terrorist organization, no sort of radical extreme religious group, uh, isn't going on the Internet to look how to build bombs, doesn't appear that he's willing to take his own life for his God. So how does this change the discussion? Because it seems as if, especially in Donald Trump's world, we're looking at one segment of the population. Now it appears terrorism has crossed every walk of life. doesn't matter what color you are, what race or religion you are. Well, there's nothing new about that. Uh, the but there seems, to be, with, the there seems to be with this administration. It was Timothy McVeigh and uh, attacking a federal building because he doesn't like government. And uh, the white militias are, are a fact for, and have been a fact for quite some time. The politicization of certain types of terrorism for political gain seems to be what we're actually talking about here. Is it true? Is it not true? It's the fact that we are speculating about a terrorism attack in that vocabulary hmm. tells us something about where we are in our politics today. Where are we? Explain. We are in a situation where it appears that the President of the United States is willing to take advantage not just of um, fear of the other, but specifically demonizing one religious, one religious group and what's going on in the world to his electoral advantage. That was the charge during the election campaign. And when there's silence, <laughs> that silence is interpreted as a continuation. Hmm. So... Uh, but does it change the discussion, Elliot, that this seems to have crossed religious and uh, r uh, racial boundaries? I mean, you were talking about uh, Timothy McVeigh, but that wasn't part of a greater terrorism discussion at that point, certainly not like we're living with now. Uh, this is sort of on the, on the coattails of everything else that's been going on. So how could it not be included in the discussion? It is included in the discussion precisely because it has become part of the political discourse. And keep in mind that there's a justification for it because most of the terrorist attacks recently in Europe, and, those are the, and, and also we've had in Canada as well, 
were committed in the name of Islam, and ISIS has to see the silence of Donald Trump as a great boon. <laughs> that is, they really like the discourse that it's us against them, and that really the West hates Islam, not ISIS, but Islam. And this kind of silence uh, and the kind of commentary about the silence and therefore about Donald Trump and therefore about America fits very nicely into their discourse. All of this adds up to the fact that we have a highly dangerous world regarding transnational terrorism that has now been transformed and transfigured into domestic politics for domestic political gain. So, again, uh, that being said, and we, we know how the White House will interpret it. We know how uh, uh, supporters and non-supporters of, of the politics of the day will. But at the end of the day, you can't ignore that this was a white guy that ran into a group of Muslims. Right. Is that not going to change the discussion? How can we ignore it? Even if Donald Trump chooses to, um, how can well, it be ignored that this does not fit the stereotype? Well, we shouldn't ignore it because there's been a terrorist attack and innocents have died and many more could have died. And uh, your comment earlier that had the scale been different, we might have a different conversation, perhaps so. We are in a situation that the highly politicized conversation about the role of Islam and terrorism leads to all kinds of um, disputes in the media about where the President of the United States and his political party stand. Um. Does this acknowledge the, the I've heard some commentators say that this attack by this person is more vigilantism than it is terrorism. Right. Um, does this acknowledge that governments aren't doing enough that people are now taking this into their own hands? That's an argument that could be made. I wouldn't buy it, and I'm sure that the police departments, the security forces in the UK are not buying that argument. Terrorism is terrorism no matter what its source, if it's now spreading to uh, subgroups within the white population that are feeding on hate, they too will be investigated and action, one hopes, will be taken. We have, by the way, uh, in Canada, Bill C-51 is up for discussion. I think this very day the government of Canada is about to release its adjustments to Canada's balancing act between security and freedom, liberty and freedom and terrorism and protection. So we struck the balance. We'll probably be restriking that balance. The UK, every state has to strike that balance between basically security and freedom. This kind of an attack can only add to the difficulty in achieving that balance. There's no reason to excuse terrorism from any source. Calling it vigilantism is a way of saying, well, really, they had it coming. And that isn't the case. We shouldn't go down that path. Uh, I can't let you go, Elliot, without asking you your thoughts on the situation in North Korea, specifically with the student who uh, we know was arrested and, and held for over a year, about 18 months or so, and then comes back in a coma and has now lost his life. Well, How does this change the discussion with North Korea? Uh, we have to start there, as we did in, regarding to the attack on the mosque. Individuals who are innocent have been killed. So we... we can't use, lose our humanity as we discuss geopolitics or the domestic political situation in the U.S. Uh, a tragedy has occurred in, inside a family and for an individual. Beyond that, what this does, 
is add one more element into the pressure on the United States to respond. Donald Trump has decided to make this his issue, a red line, saying that the era of strategic patience, i.e. blame Obama, is over, and we're not going to put up with bad behavior. But it was never clear what the red line actually meant and what would happen if it was crossed. There's going to be added pressure now on, on America to say you can't kill an American citizen and get away with it inside a highly tense, already uh, dramatically militarized situation in the East Asian sphere. We, everybody would have acted against North Korea had it been easy or simple to do, but it isn't. There's no clear and simple military solution to what to do with North Korea, and the diplomatic options are also very limited. So what this death does is raise these stakes even further on Donald Trump to deliver in a situation where it's very difficult to see how he can deliver. Also hearing reports of a close call between a Russian fighter jet and a U.S. fighter jet over uh, Syria and such, it just seems like we're on the brink of something huge here. Yes. Uh, okay. how, do we, how do we calm everybody down? I think <laughs> take a deep breath and have a good cup of tea, but the threat level in my geopolitical estimation has increased. The fact that the United States shot down a Syrian government yeah. plane and then Russia warned America, don't do it again, is itself very telling. And Russia has called off the hotline that allows the commanders in the field to be sure that the uh, airplanes aren't, it's called deconfliction. You know, right. We're not going to run into each other. And uh, they're, they're calling that off, which raises the stakes even further. So I've been saying for a long time that Syria is kind of the epicenter, Syria and Iraq, of world politics because of all the local issues and then the Sunni Shia conflict and regional powers, and then now it's great power conflict. So if you add together the things we talked about, North Korea and what's going on in Syria, the threat level has gone up. You know, people complained that Barack Obama did not do enough. It seems we've gone from one extreme to the other. Well, the only immediate response that Donald Trump made, really, in regard to the killing of an American by the North Koreans in their custody has been basically to blame Obama. Yeah. So this, in turn, is part of a pattern. The de-Obamification of America has been a steady, steady drumbeat uh, since the Trump uh, election. And that's with the Republican Party, not just Donald Trump. Together, they are trying to undo anything that Obama did. Mm. In this case, they're saying it's Obama's fault. Well, it's Obama's fault, perhaps, perhaps, but it's now on Donald Trump's watch. And what is he going to do about it? Hmm. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Certainly, Scott. Always interesting to have a good chat. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton is looking at to roll out a program that would see 50 restaurants become part of the epinephrine auto injector program, uh, having EpiPens on site. This comes as the city is looking to reduce the number of food allergy deaths. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Joseph Greenbaum is with us, Hamilton Allergist, Assistant Clinical Professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, Department of Medicine, McMaster University, and is with us now. Hello, doctor. How are you today? Fantastic. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to, uh, to participate here. Is this a good idea? Is this just a no-brainer? Yeah, I think uh, if you can afford it and if we can train people, yes. Uh, I mean, the more emergency um, medicines we have around to help people when they have uh, when they need it, for sure. 
you know, patients are very bad at carrying their own. They forget. They think they're safe in their own um, environment. A lot of people just want it when they're traveling. Uh, but but accidents happen close to home, so for sure. Uh, both my kids uh, have one of these, and you're right. It's like, you know, have you got your EpiPen? I mean, you're constantly hounding and making sure that they have it or at least have access right. uh, to it. Uh, what what would be the downfall? Is there any downfall other than perhaps the cost? No, I can't see a downfall. I mean, if it's given accidentally uh, to a normally healthy person, somebody who doesn't have any who's not elderly with all kinds of heart problems, it's safe, you know, so uh, you get a little jury for a while, but uh, nothing really happens to you. So if it's done without need, I don't think it's dangerous. And um, and it's better to give it than not to give it if, if somebody really needs it. And we know that the sooner you intervene, uh, the the quicker you get over it and the more likely you are to have a successful resolution. You know, the longer you delay using it, the worse the allergy becomes. You could, you know, knock it off at the pass if you... Uh, uh, give it quickly. What are the signs? How do you know when someone needs this? Uh, it, I think the the person starts feeling uh, itchy and uh, starts feeling like there's something happening in their body that's wrong and presumably will tell somebody nearby. And then they start uh, showing hives and they feel that they can't breathe properly. They feel the throat is closing. Mm. Uh, and you can maybe really see, see signs of them uh, uh, wheezing and gasping and getting faint, lightheaded, um, gray, you know. So uh, if you see that kind of thing happening, uh, intervene. And obviously time, especially uh, in a situation like this, extremely important. Right. Calling um, 911 and administering EpiPen uh, is really life-saving. Like, uh, the sooner you intervene, the better. Uh, you talked about uh, there's no real risk of, of somebody giving somebody uh, a dose of this that, that doesn't need it. Talk a little bit about the training and what that would entail for restaurateurs or people that have these? I'd just like to mention that as a medical student, we injected each other with adrenaline just to see what the effect would be. Really? <laughs> yeah, just like I, when I was 20 years old. You know, and not, nothing happened. You feel a little high for a few minutes and it goes away. Well, you know, the, it's, I, I think the, the training involves mostly recognizing the signs and symptoms. And the patient themselves um, presumably already know, so they'll sort of raise a flag, you know, and yell and scream or something. Okay, but then once you actually have to do it, it's really easy. You know, you take off the top and you hold it against the thigh and uh, push. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really easy. And it, uh, it, the, um, uh, there's a cover on it that automatically covers the needle, so you can't, you can't stab yourself. Right. So it's very, very safe. And there is a hesitation to do it. And I think, um, you know, because it's, it's perceived as something serious or something maybe dangerous to give, and I think that will keep you from just just giving it to people when you don't really think, you know, that maybe you're not 100% sure. But when you're really sure, uh, 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 then you, you'll give it. That was a, so the question is, like, would it be abused? Mm. Uh, would, it, would it be just everybody's going to get a shot every, every day or something? I right. think not because it's perceived as something serious and you're afraid to use it. So that takes away, I think, from the possibility of uh, just giving it to anybody. So I think you'll, you'll but when somebody's really sick, really needs it, I think you'll be determined, uh, you'll be incentivized to, to do it. And there's just one shot per pen, is there not? Right. It's a, it's a problem um, uh, because sometimes you need more than one uh, to actually rescue the person. Depending how severe it is, you may need a number. You may need two or three. Mm. Uh, but hopefully, there's another good reason for having it around because presumably you only carry one with you as a, as a patient. Yeah. Use up your own. Well, you need a second one possibly, and if 
restaurant has it. That's fantastic. You get your, you get your second. I think you usually should wait about five minutes. And if you that was my next question. How do you know when you've given enough and and so on? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the, the person himself, uh, herself starts feeling like this is getting worse and getting more itchy and more short of breath. And, and then the one shot of EpiPen sort of should put a halt to it and should sort of, you start sort of uh, in, a, in a minute or two or three, see the problem res- resolving and you're getting less short of breath and it's not getting worse and worse. But if you don't see that happening, you're as, despite a shot, a few minutes passing, uh, you think it's getting worse, then so you should do a second. Right. You know, and uh, another five minutes later, if you still see it escalating, you should do another one and, and a third one. And hopefully by then the, um, the ambulance is there and right. the other rescuers. So uh, I think the patient himself is a guide, and um, uh, you sort of titrate the dose. You know, you give and you wait and see what happens. And if necessary, give some more. You, you want to see it leveling off. Uh, what is in them? What is the actual medication that you're administering? Well, well it's your own body's adrenaline, mm-hmm. okay, which um, actually uh, shuts off the cells in your body that are releasing the chemicals that are causing this reaction. So uh, it's like uh, suddenly you have this allergy reaction and the gates of these mast cells are opened mm-hmm. and they start releasing things and uh, adrenaline shuts them off. It uh, uh, it it, uh, it keeps more stuff from being released and it uh, antagonizes the effect of the, the chemicals that are released. Like, for example, your blood vessels start opening up and you start losing consciousness because your blood is draining to your feet. So adrenaline closes the blood vessels, shut, makes them narrower, so you're not losing blood pressure and you're not uh, getting faint. And your bronchial tubes start constricting and adrenaline opens up your bronchial tube. So it prevents more release and it also antagonizes the effect of the, uh, the bad effects that are happening to you. And once you administer one of these, that person still needs to get to hospital, don't for, they? For sure, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are sometimes uh, two or three phases, so you could feel better for at a half an hour or something, and then a second phase starts. Mm. Uh, there are some things that are released uh, that act immediately, but there are some things that are released from your cells that have an effect later on. You know, it's like... Uh, uh, like going down a hill or something, you know, you, there's an initial, but then you're also at the bottom of the hill. Like, more things, are, more things happen later that need to be reversed. And uh, the more serious the reaction is, the more likely it is that there's more consequences later. So you need to also give other medications like uh, steroids and antihistamines to prevent the delayed reaction. And the person needs to be watched for a while in case there are these delayed, re- delayed reactions. Uh, we heard uh, several months ago McDonald's was... Uh, removing their uh, peanut-free, um, uh, I guess, category that that restaurant is and saying that there were some desserts that had peanuts in them so they could not, uh, they, they could not say that they were a peanut-free uh, facility anymore uh, and, and obviously made that business decision. Do you think having things like EpiPens around makes people feel more comfortable about this sort of thing and are we letting our guard down you know the the actual person who's allergic uh, needs to be responsible for themselves and to question like what is really in each substance and uh, uh, um, uh, is it safe for me to eat this uh, mixture because usually it's obvious when there's actually a peanut there and you just stay away you know uh, but it's all the, the mixtures where they might be and so I, I've heard of cases where they put uh, peanut butter in uh, tomato sauce to thicken it. And somebody in New York City died from that. And um, 
uh, I've had cases where uh, people are allergic to other foods, for example, chicken, where in a restaurant, it, it occurred once in Dundas, where somebody allergic to chicken asked for vegetable soup and actually asked the um, um, chef, did you make this yourself and what did you put in it? And he said, it's pure vegetable soup. Mm-hmm. But the previous chef had put in some chicken that was left over from a previous soup and didn't want to waste it right. as he was leaving his shift. So in, in a restaurant, you really can't tell... Uh, even if you talk to whoever made it, like what's been put yeah. inside here, and you have to be aware of all the little uh, possible uh, contaminations. Uh, so, I think you really have to very, que- very carefully question what's in there. But there's always going to be a mistake. So, uh, like some of these situations uh, that I just showed you, that uh, uh, no matter who makes it, whatever it, it can be contaminated. So, yes, I think you need to have an EpiPen handy in these restaurants in case of these reactions. Does it make people feel safer if it's peanut-free? But um, uh, Sure, but then uh, the question is, are we going to uh, penalize all of society uh, uh, for uh, uh, some people who need to be more careful, who need to be uh, very uh, uh, aware of their surroundings and what they're getting? How often does something like this happen where in a public place, whether it be a restaurant or a mall, that someone does have one of these reactions? In, I, I hear them all the time, you know, and I, and I think it always happens in places where people are off guard and they're having fun and, they're, uh, and so their guard is down and they're not quite as careful and looking at what they might be eating. And um, if you're asking me for the incidents, I really don't don't have a number for you. Uh, I can tell you that two or three percent of the population is allergic. And how often are people really reacting in restaurants? Uh, I'm, you know, I honestly don't know. But um, um, I think probably half the cases of food allergy occur. Um, uh, at home with accidents, with homemade things where people are invited to other people's homes, and the other half presumably in restaurants. I don't have real numbers for you. Uh, what about the training? Is the, Will there be extensive training? How much training do we need for something like this? Well, I, I, think, I think more than the training is like the reinforcement of training. I think you can train somebody in five or ten minutes what to do and what to look for, but then will they remember this like three months later? Will a guard who's been – the guards are, are carrying these now at uh, Jackson Square, mm-hmm. you know, but three months after the training, do they remember that five minutes of instructions? So I think it's uh, re-education again and again. Uh, maybe once a year they need to sort of, uh, again, go through the signs and symptoms of what's happening and how to use it. I think if you, you just do it once, it's easy. But then uh, the guy has to think, gee, you know, a year ago I, lear- I knew something about this, but I don't remember now. You know? uh, we've heard uh, situations of late where uh, um, parents are trying to introduce some of these foods to their kids at a younger age in order to build up immunity. What more do we know about allergies today that we didn't 10 years ago? Well, there's a famous uh, study that was done, um, uh, especially in uh, most of the patients were in uh, England, and and the idea was to take uh, kids who had a good chance of being allergic to peanuts and introduce it before the allergy could develop and see if you could prevent it developing. And the results were very good. And uh, not everybody was prevented, but let's say 80% of people, of kids, we're talking about kids, um, you know, somewhere from six months onwards, 
um, in situations where there are family histories of lots of allergies and they had uh, uh, skin rashes, atopic dermatitis, that also indicate that you're likely going to get into difficulty or a good possibility. And, um, and so uh, there, there's a strong movement now to uh, introduce um, allergy-type foods as early as possible. And as early as possible means as soon as the child can start swallowing. I mean, uh, a baby can just suck milk, but after three months, four months, six months, can actually swallow some food. Well, I could see how parents would be apprehensive of this, though. What happens if there's a reaction? Um, the the question is, um, um, you, if you want, you could do an allergy test in advance to sort of say this peanut, right. the peanut test is negative now. Uh, the allergy has not yet developed. Let's introduce it right now before mm. it has a chance to develop. Mm. So you can have some assurance. But I don't think in the study they actually did that. They just took their chances. And uh, reactions were very minimal very, because the patients had not actually had a history of reacting. Right. You know, so they, it was as if you knew that something had happened before. You had no knowledge. So you had no knowledge that there was any problem. So um, um, I don't think anybody had any serious reactions. And the studies, the, the results were very good. So there was that, this uh, called LEAP. Uh, which was, uh, I forgot the, what the L stands for, but early introduction of peanut. Okay, and um, so now this is being done across the board and it's, uh, with other foods as well, and it sort of changed our way of thinking about what we should do about food allergy. If you go back 10 years, people used to say, if there's a chance, avoid yeah. it, wait till you're 5 years old or 10 mm-hmm. years old. But now the idea is start as soon as possible before anything has happened, and just, and, but you've got to keep it going. If you don't, if you just give it to them and then wait a year or two and then give it to them again, it could, ha- it could develop. Right. You start and mm. you keep going. Dr. Joseph Greenbaum has been with us, Hamilton Allergist, Assistant Clinical Professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, I'm going to tell you a story before I get into this uh latest situation, and this has to do with privacy in, in the digital world that we now live in. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember when people didn't want cameras everywhere. Whenever you went to put a security camera up in a public area, people would, people would scream. They'd scream, Big Brother, no privacy, you shouldn't be watching me. Now, of course, everyone has a camera in their pocket, so it appears nobody cares. But let me tell you about a personal situation, and I'll keep names and locations out of it, because this still ticks me off to this day. I still hate this person. Perhaps hate's a strong word. The person's just misguided, perhaps a little immature. But I remember uh, at one of the places that I worked, not here, um, and I worked with a group of people on a show, and uh, we were in a meeting with the boss, and it was a difficult meeting. It was a challenging meeting. There were issues. And uh, so being the head guy of the team, I'm up there taking the lumps. And uh, my coworkers were, who worked with me on the show were sort of sitting off to the side. I'm in the, in the hot seat sitting across from the boss. And we're having a, a discussion and such. And um, the two other people who worked on the show were kind of not paying attention. We'll leave it at that. And then I later realized, and this was just at the beginning of the digital era, um, that the one guy was like taking pictures of me while I'm having this meeting with my boss and later posted them. 
And my first reaction was, you were in that meeting. Shouldn't you be paying attention like I was as opposed to goofing around and taking pictures? But that was sort of the maturity level of this person I unfortunately had to work with. But then after, after that, I thought, well, what about privacy? I mean, it's not like we're in a public space. We were in a closed meeting room, a closed office with the door closed, having a personal meeting. So it wasn't like we were walking across the parking lot or in a mall or any other public place. I mean, I guess it's a public place of business, but it was a closed door meeting. And I remember thinking and questioning, number one, this person's ethics, uh, this person's maturity, um, and, and all that sort of thing on a personal aspect. And then I'm thinking, well, I don't have to worry about this person, so what do I care what they do? But then on the other hand, it's like, it's still an invasion of my privacy. You know, I'm in there having a meeting with somebody, and this clown's taking pictures. And, you know, and again, there's two different sides to this, two different elements of this to me. It's, number one, the invasion of privacy. And then on a personal level, why aren't you just paying attention instead of goofing off? Which is probably why we're in the meeting in the first place. And uh, I remember feeling helpless because I had sort of no retaliation. I had no, no recourse here. There's nothing I could do. Other than go my own way and never see never see these two people again, uh, which has worked out quite well, I might add. Um, but I remember even to this day, I'm annoyed at this. Even though it was a bazillion years ago and it really isn't that important, isn't that important. But to me, it was the principle. Well, now the issue of being recorded in public without consent has already made headlines this month with the Canada creep story. Now some women, however, women, however, are feeling violated due to pickup artists who are secretly recording them and uploading the interaction onto YouTube. And this was a story in the Toronto Star talking about this girl who was enjoying a walk through a park five years ago when a man sauntered up them and began to persistently hit on them. It wasn't until the man moved on to another group that this person realized that there was a second person following that was actually recording this with a camera. A couple of months later, she discovered the YouTube channel that the pair had made in their attempts to pick up other women in the park that day. The person goes on to say it was a breach of privacy to know that my conversation with this guy was being recorded and it could have been used online. She goes on to say she was underage at this time and pretty sure that we were in our school uniforms, she said. So it was already creepy. Well, it turns out that uh, there's not much that can be done for these two people that, that do this filming simply because they've taken precautions to keep them in the gray area of the law, like not identifying the women, this sort of thing. So that being said, we've gone from one extreme, a complete 180, to the other opposite extreme. From nobody wants anything to you can't go anywhere. Don't ever pick your nose in public. Because there's probably a YouTube channel for that. Let's bring in David Fraser, privacy lawyer, McGinnis Cooper. He is on the line with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? 
I am very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Surprised we are where we are with this discussion? Not really. I guess in, in the grand scheme of things, if you if you look at things in the whole sweep of history, even in just kind of the, the recent history, um, these sorts of the collection of this sort of information is just much more pervasive than it than it ever was, and and maybe we've been like the frog in the water, in the proverbial water, not having noticed it heat up along the way. But you'll probably recall back 20 years ago, the only place you would see surveillance cameras was in a bank, and they were the size of a microwave. Mm. Now surveillance cameras are, are everywhere, uh, both in private places and in public places, or at least kind of privately owned spaces and in, and in public spaces. The cost has gone down dramatically. The capabilities of the technology has gone up equally dramatically. And so this sort of stuff is, is just simply more pervasive, and it becomes the, the first kind of go-to in, if there's any kind of policing issue or anything else like that. And now, as you mentioned, it, everybody's walking around with a, with a camera in their pocket. Uh, and, you know, there's some great things that have come out of that, the amount of really cool photography I've seen on Instagram, for example, that is a, a direct result of people walking around with pretty good cameras in their pockets. But kind of in a way, technology itself is neutral, and it's, it's how it's used. So I have, a, I have a camera. I think I use it for good purposes. I capture some really great family memories that I otherwise wouldn't have captured because I wouldn't have had my, my big Nikon with me at those times. Um, but at the same time, these can be used by these sorts of creeps who are uh, engaged in what I would call mischief. It perhaps isn't criminal mischief um, and are doing things that are pretty boorish and, and creepy. And I think overall the, the big challenge we have is where do you draw the line? So there are so we had that, that Canada Creeps Twitter account where the individual was charged under the voyeurism provisions of, of our law that require that, that images be taken covertly, kind of surreptitiously. And so that was that's one of the elements of that offense. And so some of them were where there was an expectation of privacy being up somebody's skirt. Or they were actually like shooting up people's skirts or women's skirts and such, though. I mean, that, well, I don't know. What's the difference between, you know, doing something that way or as opposed to doing something secret from behind a bush? Well, and, and so certainly doing something secret from behind a bush for a sexual purpose actually does trigger the voyeurism provisions. Um, but you always end up with an interesting conversation about what was the expectation of privacy at the time. It's pretty clear that somebody has an expectation of privacy up their skirt. Whether they, they have a, an expect, any sort of expectation of privacy in a public place is, is really where I think the second case kind of hinges on and, and why there isn't a law that really steps in and addresses that when somebody's walking around with their camera out uh, and is recording what's around them. And, and the, as I said, the challenge really becomes where do you draw the line because you and I and many people have a sense of what's creepy and what's not, but we need to in order to decide what puts people in jail and what is, <laughs> what is not criminal. Is it, is it an ethical thing? I mean, is it, is it say more of our person than it does of the law? And here's another example. I'm, I'm at the Rogers Center watching a baseball game with the family. And I decide I'm going to do a selfie. Well, when you hold your phone up and you spin the camera around, if people are in front of you, they don't know you're taking a selfie. They could think that you're taking a picture of them. And I remember doing this and, and, and obviously having the field behind us and the crowd the other way. I remember saying to the people behind me, don't worry, I'm not taking your picture. It's just a selfie. I'm taking myself. It's not aimed at you. 
because I felt offended that, you know, these people are, well, who's this guy taking a picture of me? So I, I felt like I had to explain myself. <laughs> people don't feel that way, though, do they? Well, I think one thing that's interesting is that, that the, there, there's almost become a recognized pose of selfie-taking. And so if somebody kind of whipped around and held their camera in my face uh, but adopted that pose, I would know what they were, what they were right, doing. And so right. our, our kind of expectations, I think, are, are shifting over time. And, but the, the, the sort of activity that these kind of creeps were engaged in uh, is certainly unethical and it's mm. certainly slimy. And, and, but where, where exactly do you draw that line? Because... If you start saying, well, you simply can't take pictures of people in public, then that means that, that you can't take that selfie in a, yeah. in a crowded stadium because there are people in the background. Mm-hmm. It means that, that the reporters that, uh, that, that provide, that do journalism by film or uh, by video or, or with cameras, uh, can't take pictures of public streets. I, I can't go to a parade and take a picture of, of people because there are going to be people in the background. And, and so it is very difficult to find where they draw the line. So, so the lines have been drawn in some pretty significant places when it comes to, like, the voyeurism offense and, uh, and some other ones. We had the challenge in Nova Scotia uh, a couple of years ago where perhaps with the best of intentions, they tried to pass legislation related to cyberbullying, and they, and they put the bar so low that anybody who said anything rude about anybody online was was a cyberbully under that law, and it was uh, I, I uh, on behalf of a client went to court and, and it was found to be unconstitutional because it simply it, it captured too much, and and when it comes to for example a freedom of expression charter analysis, you have to look at is it appropriately tailored to go after the real mischief, and does it inadvertently kind of capture other protected speech, and so you need to be very careful and and. I would hope that we don't become complacent. I don't have any sort of problem with with kind of public condemnation of this sort of behavior. Um, But one thing that we have to be conscious of is also kind of does it backfire? Like you'll recall the individual who threw a beer can at a a baseball game a couple years ago. Now that was on broadcast television, but... But that image was transmitted all over social media and resulted in the person losing their job and being mm-hmm. shamed and things like that. There have been instances that I've heard of quite a few in Asia, but in other places where people have committed suicide because they did something that was yeah. at that moment embarrassing. Um, but that became their uh, kind of their calling card almost. Mm-hmm. Think of the, uh, of the Star Wars kid from, oh, I, is it a decade ago now? who is now an activist related to kind of online uh, shaming and, and cyberbullying because that was the pivotal and kind of defining moment of his adolescence. And so at the, at, while you want to call people out for stuff, and, and I, I can appreciate the impulse, the number of times that I've been tempted to uh, kind of go on Twitter and, and just, just yesterday some idiot taking up two parking spots yeah. inside a parking lot <laughs> and... Uh, and I had my phone in my pocket, and I, in fact, did take a picture, and then I thought twice about tweeting. I thought, no, really, does that, does that contribute to anything overall? Mm. Um, but, I, but I do think that it's, that it's part of a, an impulse in modern society that, uh, that we need to be careful about, but also that, uh, that I'm, I'm concerned that the Internet and, because of that, the real world is actually becoming a, bit of a, a more hostile place for women. I don't think it ever was a, a, a safe space for women. But to, for people to be walking down the street wearing completely appropriate and lawful clothes, to be, it's one thing to be targeted by catcallers. It's another thing to have that image 
uh, end up on online where it's going to where it may in fact be uh, be somewhat permanent. And, and you know that conflicted in some of these uh, some of these issues. You bring up a valid point when you use the term cat callers too, because you know it reminds you of the old uh, you know analogy of you know a pile of construction workers standing around, and every time a woman goes by, they whistle or they heckle, which isn't acceptable anymore. Is this any different? Well, I think it's probably part of the same sort of impulse. There's there's certainly a level of, of objectification and, and misogyny that goes in there, and and I'm I'm just reminded of of when if somebody was staring at somebody else, they'd say, "Well, paint a picture; it'll last longer." Well, mm. now they have a camera in their pocket, and that's, that's right. And that's in fact what they're what they're doing. So, and is it illegal to record someone without their knowledge and post the footage? What is the law? Well, as, as long as you're as long as you're in a public place where there's no expectation of privacy and you're not doing it covertly, you you can in fact lawfully do that. You can't make commercial use of the image, so you can't, for example, make them kind of turn it into an endorsement. And in the province of Quebec, has additional. Uh, and, and you know, like these these two guys on this website, that's what they're doing. They're making money off this page. So are they not opening themselves up for this sort of thing? Well, then you end up with with an interesting line between what is commercial speech and what is journalism. Uh, so, so they're purporting to be writing books about how to pick up women, um, which most kind of uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of use sneer quotes. Most kind of nonfiction books mm. and, and of other sorts of works kind of fit into the journalistic category that are more highly protected uh, due to our, our charter. Uh, commercial speech would be to use it for an ad, for example. So, so you look at one of the images that was used by CBC when they did their coverage of these Canada creeps last uh, uh, last week. That and the woman consented to it. It was a picture of a woman in a pretty dress, some fitting dress from behind. If somebody had taken that image and used it as an ad for that dress, mm. uh, that would be kind of the clear commercial use where you would need a model release, and the person can sue because you're you're appropriating their personality for uh, their economic personality essentially, which is slightly different than what most of us think of in terms of our privacy interests. But you know, privacy means different things to different people, and and kind of the line is drawn differently, and and that line is also moving for a lot of people. It's a it's a challenging moving uh, moving target. And there really aren't that many areas of the law that are designed to protect people's feelings. And in fact, kind of privacy, other than kind of set aside the identity theft, for example, where, where somebody can actually suffer serious financial loss because of the misuse of their information, most of this stuff is about protecting people from being intimidated, from being embarrassed, from being creeped out. Um, and it's a real challenging area to try to come up and, and draft a, a law, for example, that would say, well, well, this is sanctionable, this is over that line, or this is something that you can get, you can get sued for. Um, and it, in fact, I'd rather have the civil justice system, for example, lawsuits come into play than the criminal justice system, because um, that can be more readily abused by the state in order to get rid of uh, things that they find to be problematic, and uh, and things that that they're they kind of embarrass the government, um, and the the civil justice system is more designed for compensating people and and kind of setting them back in back right, and also uh, some if somebody ends up with a criminal record, there that's a that's the scarlet letter these days. It's going to follow them for the rest of their lives. David Fraser has been with us, privacy lawyer at McGinnis Cooper in Nova Scotia. Uh, the issue of being recorded in public without consent, always making headlines. Uh, David, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Well, it's my pleasure. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.